Now, I want us to continue in worship along those lines this morning. It's a perfect pivot point because this morning we're going to talk about the church. We uh, walked through the little letter from Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians. We did that before Holy Week. And then Holy Week we had Palm Sunday, we had Good Friday, we had Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday morning. And so we're going to now come back out of our Holy Week worship gatherings and we're going to turn the page, quite literally in your Bible, and we're going to be in the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's actually in there. If you haven't been there before, I'm going to invite you to turn to your Bibles right now. Look in 2 Thessalonians. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Just go back left. It's okay. It's a short, little efficient book, but it's absolutely packed. Only three chapters. We're only going to be in here a few weeks. It's going to get us into the, the late spring season. But this little letter is rather fascinating. It, it sort of forces us, as we read through these three chapters, to ask a question. What is a good church? Now, just as soon as I say that, you might have all sorts of metrics, ideas, tradition, history that might pop up. You might think, oh, church should be X, Y, or Z. What is a good church? What is a church that you would be proud of? What is a church that we should be proud of? But maybe, maybe we should boil that question down even further and say, what is a church that the Apostle Paul would actually be proud of? Like if Paul came and visited our church, we'd say, yeah, that's really great. That needs to go. That, oh my gosh, who's in charge around this place? And I would be running the opposite direction by then, right? What is a church that Paul would be proud of? And then, obviously, most importantly, most fundamentally and foundationally, what is a church that God would be proud of? That God would say, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's getting it done. That is what the church is. It's why I sent my son. That's what the bride and the body of Christ is to be in that circumstance and context. What is it? So I don't know. You might have a whole different set of ideas. It might have to do with nickels and noses. How is the church performing numerically, empirically? Something that we can quantify. How many people attend? How is their giving? That's a lot of the time, candidly, this is why I don't go to pastor's conferences anymore. That's usually what a bunch of pastors walk around and go, well, what's your budget? What's your attendance? And I'm over in the corner vomiting crackers because that's just the grossest thing. I hate having those conversations. We don't do it that way. So what are the things that determine what a good and healthy church is? Well, praise be to God. We don't have to just spitball and try to get creative. Our scriptures are telling us with great clarity and consistency. So this little letter, 2 Thessalonians. I hope and trust and expect that you've slept since we walked through 1 Thessalonians. So I want to give you a little bit of a reminder of how we got to this letter of 2 Thessalonians. Because it is a letter written by a person to some people in a place at a period for a purpose. Well, duh. But it's important. We have to understand that the Apostle Paul writes this letter to some people in a place, at a period, for a purpose. And when we begin to understand that, then the meaning of what he's writing begins to emerge off the page. And that's when we understand that God is speaking to us. That's why here at Bethel, when we preach a sermon series, we, generally speaking, will walk straight through an entire book of the Bible. We want to understand what it meant to them there and then, the recipients originally, then and only then can we understand how it applies to us in our day and age, in our context. So for this little letter, 2 Thessalonians, what's going on? Well, it's the third letter that Paul ever writes that we have. It's possible he wrote something else, but we don't know. We don't have it. After his first missionary journey, <coughs> excuse me, recorded 
In the book of Acts, he goes back to his sending church in Pisidian Antioch, and he writes the letter to the Galatians. And he's pretty fired up. He's chomping at the bit. He opens up with the most typical greeting. Hey, you idiots, what happened to you? Always a way to start off your correspondences to the church. By the time he writes to the Thessalonians, he's softened a good bit. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been starved. He has malaria. He's gone through a whole lot of life. And so he's gone into his second missionary journey. He's in what is today modern-day Turkey, and he has plans to go to Ephesus and minister there. But the Spirit of God says, no, Paul, you're not going to Ephesus. Paul says, no problem. I got this. I'll go north to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says, no, Paul, you're not. Paul says, but this is what I do. I'm a missionary. He goes, right, I'm sending you to Europe, at which Paul said, Europe? It's full of Euro trash. I mean, it's like all these Gentiles, and they, they don't even hardly have any synagogues. Jesus tells Paul, Paul, you're thinking big, I'm thinking global. You're thinking individual, I'm thinking international. And so Paul has a vision of a man of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, saying, come over here and help us. And so in Acts 16, Paul goes to Philippi. He gets beaten with rods, thrown in prison, but he starts a church there. He has to flee. He goes through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he comes to a place called Berea, and he ministers in the synagogue. And the Jews, well, they don't like that very much. Finally, Paul finds himself in Thessalonica. He's only there for about three and a half weeks. And the scriptures tell us in Acts 17 that he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue, telling them that the Messiah has, in fact, come, and that it's Jesus, and that he lived, and that he was amazing, and they liked that message. Oh, but that he died. They didn't like that message. And that he rose again. They didn't understand that message. And that Paul had seen him and knew him, and he was amazing. They were confused by that message. And then Paul says, and he loves Gentiles too, and they picked up rocks to stone him. That message they could not stand. But Paul does exactly what his teacher, Jesus, had done. He reasons with them from the Scriptures. It's what Jesus does. In Luke 24, we're told that as he walks along the road to Emmaus, he encounters two very concerned, very confused disciples. And Jesus tells them all of the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that we're pointing to and preparing for him. Same thing that Paul does. That's what we try and endeavor to do in church, is we open up the Scriptures and say, look, Here's Jesus. Well, Paul gets run out of Thessalonica. He has to go down to Athens, and then he goes down to Corinth, where he stays for 18 months. But he's nervous as a cat sitting in Corinth, wondering what happened to the people in Thessalonica. And so he sends Timothy back. Timothy stays with him for a while, comes back and gives a great report. They have some issues. They have some questions. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to them. That letter gets delivered, probably by Timothy. About five to six months go by. This is A.D. 51. An anonymous person comes back and gives another report about the church at Thessalonica. And so Paul very quickly sits down and he writes another letter, 2 Thessalonians. It's very pastoral. It is very compassionate. He's trying to address their concerns so you might think of the book of 2 Thessalonians. Here's a very basic outline. It's only three chapters. The first chapter is all about commendation. You guys are amazing. You guys are incredible. You've done a wonderful job in the midst of very difficult circumstances, in the midst of very bad situations. You've done really, really well. That's chapter one. Chapter two is all about clarification. Oh, you think you've already missed the day of the Lord. You, you think you're in what we call the tribulation that I taught you about, Paul says. No, no, no. You haven't missed the day of the Lord. And then the third chapter is a correction. Now, when I say correction, I mean it in the sense of the way my dad used to correct me, okay? When my dad would see that I had overslept for church, he would walk in and he would correct me. <laughs> it's a little bit of a foot 
involved in Paul's correction. But still, that's chapter 3, not, not get after it, he's going to say. So there's a commendation, there's a clarification, there's a correction. And in this little letter, Paul's going to talk about the enormity, the massive magnitude, the majesty of this strange hodgepodge group of Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave and free, called the church. And so our big idea for this morning as we begin just barely to open up this little letter is that church matters. My strong suspicion is that the vast majority of you, this is probably not the first Sunday you've ever spent in church. And in fact, my strong suspicion is that for almost all of us, if not all of us, there have been a number of Sundays where you flat weren't in church for whatever reason. At the end of the day, when we've gone through seasons of not being participants and engaged members of a church, by and large, for whatever reason, it's because we looked at the bride and we found her wanting. It's okay to admit that. At some level, at some point in your life, you encountered engaged church and you went, you know what, it's really doing nothing for me. I got nothing here. I know all the stories. I'm done with all the people, whatever it is, and you've stepped away. Well, this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to nip all of that in the bud and he's going to tell us how massive and marvelous and majestic is the church of Jesus Christ. So we're in 2 Thessalonians. We're just going to crack through these first four verses very efficiently this morning. 2 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just two more verses. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is God's word. This is the very words of God. To inspire the Apostle Paul to write a letter as a person to some people at a place during a period for a purpose. It's our opportunity to understand what those things are. So let's start back very briefly here at the beginning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Your translation might say Silas. Silvanus is his Roman name, his Latin name. Silas is his Hebrew or his Jewish name. And Timothy. Silas is a central figure all through the New Testament. He's around a lot. He travels with Paul. He later will travel with Peter. He doesn't have a book named after him, but he's very central, and he's really uh, key and central in supporting the ministry of the apostles. Timothy. Timothy, you might remember, half Gentile, half Jew. He was from the area of Galatia, specifically in a city called Lystra, which is in central Turkey. It's the Nebraska of central Turkey. It's just all agriculture. It's the breadbasket. That's where Paul encounters Timothy on his first missionary journey, probably converts him, and then he picks him up on his second missionary journey. Paul circumcises Timothy. Again, I always said one of the greatest acts of faith in Scripture is that of Timothy. <laughs> remember, Paul had an eyesight problem. Hold still, Timothy. Oh, that's not, that's just not. Oh. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they're sitting in Corinth. They're there for 18 months watching all that happens in Corinth. Now, we've got to talk about this. Corinth is kind of more famous to us in the West because we've been churched and we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians and there's a lot more material there. And we've heard the stories about Corinth. Well, Corinth was sort of the, the, the central 
economic hub of southern Greece. But, but its sister city in the north was Thessalonica. I want to remind you that Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Some estimates say that it had at least 200,000 people. Uh, they had a temple there where they would worship the Kabiri. This is a temple cultic prostitution. This is how they would go and worship and, and invoke the gods unto fertility. It was a seaport, so it's right on the coast. A lot of sailors that had a I had a Roman garrison there. a lot of soldiers, a lot of sailors. It was a free city, meaning that they had been granted full status as Roman citizens. It had a river that would run straight through Thessalonica that would dump out into the sea. So there's a lot of trade, a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, a lot of money changing hands. Had the Ignatian Way. So as it's on a seaport, it also has this Roman road called the Ignatian Way, where if you wanted to get anything into Italy from the east, the Orient, you had to go on the Ignatian Way, and that went right through Thessalonica. So it was a very central hub, very debauched. Murder was rampant. Life was not precious in those contexts. So Thessalonica in the north and Corinth were very, very similar. And so Paul sitting in Corinth, writing to Thessalonica, saying, hey, we get it. And I was there. I understand what you were dealing with. I've been there. I've got the scars. I remember it all too well. So he writes this customary greeting, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, that's an identity text. He's reminding them that they are no longer identified by the color of their passport. They wore as a badge of honor. We are free citizens of Rome. In fact, there was a statue in Thessalonica that said, Caesar is Lord, and we eagerly await our Savior from Rome. But Paul says in Philippians, which is also Macedonia, no, Jesus is Lord, and we eagerly await our Savior from heaven. Now, that's a different way of thinking. And so he reminds these people to the church, to the called out ones, you are a colony of God's cosmos. You are to be ambassadors, agents, and emissaries. You're not merely Romans, with a Jesus fish stuck on your members-only jacket. That ain't it. You have a new group identity to the church of the Thessalonians, and then, and then, and then. This incredible designation in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's amazing. That little word, in, is probably Paul's favorite prepositional phrase. It's a geospatial, geospiritual locator that I cannot make a big enough deal. But when Paul says this, he's giving us the criteria, the measurable, quantifiable criteria of a healthy church, of a good church, of a church of which we could be proud. So we find the first one right here. There's four mm, distinguishing characteristics and qualities of a church that is good, that is to be proud of. First is, it goes like this, it is full of genuine converts. It has genuine conversion. Not people who are pretty good at Bible trivia. Not people who have heard the stories, who got graham crackers and red punch when they were in the seventh grade, but who are actually genuine converts. It says that they are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In. In the mind of God, they exist in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Father and Lord, God the Father and our Lord Jesus are represented and referenced with equal prestige. 
It's not God the Father and one of his angels, one of his dispatched emissaries, one of his messengers. No, 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 no. They are on the same level in terms of prestige and prominence. Now, that's a massive thing to say. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Rabbi Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi in Israel's history, is saying that this carpenter from Nazareth is God. Because he is. And so Paul says, hey, let me remind you, church, who you are. You are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father. Why, why, is, why is that a big deal? Well, for starters, nobody in Israel in the Old Testament would ever refer to God as Father. The nation could refer to God as Father, but no individual ever, ever, ever. Only Jesus does that. And Jesus refers to God as his Father over and over again, right up until he's on the cross. And for the first time, he doesn't refer to God as Father. He says, Eloi, Eloi the judicial name of God as judge. But now we call him God our Father, and it's our, there's a plurality. He is our Father. What is a father's primary responsibility? Some of you dads, this is important. You should probably hear this. This is, this is important. Biblically, the father's role primarily is to be a provider, to, to, to make provision, to protect and to discipline. That's a lot of what the biblical model of fatherhood is, to do provision, protection, and discipline. Now, when it says the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a little bit different. There's a, a forward, a leading, a, a championing, an owning, a mastery, a kingship involved there. And so, whether we know it or not, man, our scriptures are doing incredible therapy with this. Those two titles of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ actually address two of the most fundamental foundational human needs we each have, whether we know, recognize, or appreciate it or not. All of us from birth, eight billion of us alive on the planet today, have a desperate need of rescue and purpose. All of us. At some level, when we're struggling with this, that, or the other, it's probably because at one level, we fear we don't have rescue or we fear we don't have purpose. Now, you can sit and think all afternoon as, as you're processing your Sunday after church lunch, where I'm having a struggle with sin or with fear or with anger or with whatever it might be, with, with lethargy. Is it because I am at some level dealing with the, the perception of lack of rescue or lack of purpose? God, our Father, provides rescue because he loves us. What does he do? He dispatches his sendable self, the very Son of God. We heard about it in all of our singing this morning to provide rescue from ourselves, from our sin, uh, from, from death and bondage, just like we see in the Old Testament and the Exodus. God the Father provides rescue, but we also have the Lord Jesus who provides purpose, direction, zeal, gives us an actual objective for our lives to aim at. Both of those things are addressed. Now, no other religion in the world says that they are presently in their deity. None. It is a complete, distinctive, and unique to Christianity. You, if you are a practicing Muslim, would never say you are in Allah. That would be blasphemy. You, you could not say, if you were a practicing Hindu, that you were in Vishnu or Shiva or any of the other millions of Hindu gods that are in the pantheon. You would never say you were in the Buddha. You would never say you are found in the Zoroaster. None of those things, none. But our faith construct is what we call a defeatist belief. Let me explain. A little nerdy, a little philosophical. Stick with me. 
If you agree, if you believe that we are found in God and that that is the definition of salvation and genuine conversion, then that obliterates the errant notion that there are multiple paths up the mountain and that all other organizing narratives or religions are just different packaging of the same thing. They are not. Christianity's belief defeats the possibility of the existence of any other. And it's good for us in a church to be reminded of that. We're not the exclusivists. Our God is. And he is holy, holy, holy. So what are the marks of a healthy church? Well, it's full of genuine converts. And I'm not saying that if you're not an actual believer, you can't come here. Of course you can come here. We want you to come here. We want you to be here. We actually even want you to get engaged and to know and to be known. But our membership is for people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. That's the watermark of a Christian. Are you found by God the Father in Christ and indwelled by the Spirit and engaged with the people? Genuine conversion. That's the first mark of a good church that we would be proud of. Secondly, let me just make mention of this. Paul gives a great little opening greeting here in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from our God from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Grace that comes externally to you. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Unmerited favor. You did nothing but sin to earn his favor. That's it. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and then peace. And always in that order. And let me also invite you to think theologically, particularly in this day and age, it's 2023, perhaps you've noticed there seems to be an increasing rhetoric <laughs> in the media, a, a polarization and a galvanization of radicalized thought, politically, partisan, whatever you want to say. But we are those people who are invited, energized, and equipped to think theologically. Hey, what's going on? Why are all those people with whom I disagree, why do they think that way? Are they just dumb? Don't answer. No. No. You know what they want? Whichever side of whichever aisle you want to talk about, all of those people are simply pursuing a life that they believe will work. In other words, they're pursuing peace. Everybody's actually pursuing peace. The difference is what is the means and the method of approach. And if you think, well, the answer to have global peace is free market capitalism, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you think the answer to prosperity and peace globally is to have a socialistic government, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But the thing is, everybody's actually wanting peace. Our Bibles are telling us, ah, it is available. We can have peace with God, and we get to have the peace of God. How? How? How can we have that? Friends, we have the answer. And it's not new. It's thousands of years in the making. It's grace. It's grace. Receive to ourselves what God has done. He gives us peace. We have peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. And we also have the peace of God. That's Colossians 4 and Philippians 4. Grace and peace. And he says this to some people sitting in Thessalonica in the midst of all kinds of gross, horrible things happening under the Roman Empire. Grace and peace to you. So the first mark of a church of which we could be proud is genuine conversion. The people in the church are actually Christians. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. Huh. There's a second mark. 
increasing faith. So genuine conversions, that's what a healthy church has, and increasing faith. Not existing faith, not treading water faith, increasing faith, like a plant. He, he, he makes up a word. It's not just increasing and growing like a plant or a, a baby grows. No, it's this hypergrowth. It's used nowhere else in the New Testament. He says, I'm sitting in Corinth, and I'm hearing stories about you, that your faith is super growing. It's exceeding expectations. That's because it's faith in a person that they had never met. Do you understand? It wasn't faith in a policy or a procedure or a philosophy or a program. It was faith in a person, and it was increasing. And by the way, can I just say, if your faith is not increasing, there's a high degree of likelihood that it's because you've placed it on a program or a path or a philosophy or a procedure or a program or some other P that I can come up with. No, our faith is in a person. And the more we draw close to him, the more our faith grows. We studied the gospel of Mark last year, and we said this every Sunday morning. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. And Paul says, you're doing that. Even though you never met him bodily, physically, and in person, you're drawing close. And so your faith is increasing radically. Like, unbelievable. We're bragging about your faith down here. Now, apparently, this anonymous report comes back from Thessalonica, and whoever brought that report said, hey, Paul, you got to stop talking about the Thessalonians. They're kind of sheepish. They're like, hey, hey, stop bragging about us. We got problems, too. And Paul says, I can't. It's unbelievable. You never met him. You listened to my preaching, Paul says. I placarded him before you, he will say in Galatians and later in other epistles. I, like, billboarded Jesus, and you believed it. You were persuaded. You were convinced, and you have drawn nearer and nearer to him because of the words of the apostles in Scripture. And that's the mark of a church that Paul would be proud of, increasing faith. That's really interesting. They're being persecuted. But Paul makes no apology for that. Never once he goes, I'm so sorry. I know, I know. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Never, ever. Here's why. Paul knows that mm, persecution destroys false faith, and persecution builds true faith. And by the way, persecution is used by God to purify his church. So don't even get me started on this whole prosperity notion. If you just believe God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, no, you might die. And that's all right. Because there's better things than human happiness and worse things than death. Are we actually increasing in our faith? One of the very last things the apostle Peter writes before he's killed, crucified upside down in Rome. One of the very last statements we have from Peter is in his second epistle, 2 Peter 3, 18. This is what he says to those churches of what is today modern Turkey. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be, both gl be glory both now and forever. Amen. Pa Peter's saying what Paul says because it's, you know, biblical, both inspired by the Spirit. Grow in the knowledge of him. It's not that you have to memorize Song of Solomon. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Have fun with that. No, no. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Grow closer and closer to him. It is God's command that we grow. So let me just, let me just meddle. Let me, let me stomp some toes here if I can. Because I've been stomping my own all week long. So now you're getting what I've been getting. 
It is God's command that our faith increase. And so if it's not increasing, we are either unregenerate, not believers, and we want to be honest and transparent about that. If our faith is not increasing, it's because we're not believers or it's because we are rebelliously resisting God and grieving the Spirit. I'm a believer. And there are certainly seasons in which my faith is not increasing. Because at some level I doubt rescue. I doubt purpose. But surely I'm the only one in the room who has that issue. The rest of you super saints... Just indulge me for a moment, if you would, please. Now, Paul has to mention their increasing faith. Why? Because just about five months earlier, when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he tells them that he's praying for this very thing. You've slept since then. Let me remind you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then this anonymous reporter comes back and says, You guys... Paul, Silas, Timothy, their faith is just blowing up. It is just, I mean, it's like they know Jesus. It's like they have a relationship with him. It's unbelievable. What he prayed came to pass, which then produces the second half of verse 3. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I wish there was a better translation than increasing. The love you have one for another is increasing. No, the love you have one for another is flash flooding. It's a word that exists nowhere else in the New Testament. It's not just increasing. It's it's that river that comes through the center of Thessalonica. I think Paul knew what he was talking about. I think he might have actually even been there. That river every now and then would break its banks and it would just flood the city. And Paul says, because of your faith in Jesus, because of your faith in who he is, what he's like, what he's done, you're drawing closer to him. You know what that's doing? Making you want to reach up and hug his neck. No, never. You are loving, and it's all of you loving all of you, having a well-intentioned concern for everybody else. I'm even talking about church people. I know they can be something But Paul says, because your faith is increasing, you are flash flooding in love for one another. Now, we kind of lose the sense of that. We have a lot of our staff right now is in Sierra Leone, West Africa, training local pastors in that war-torn, very difficult context. And they will say, you Americans, you are beginning to feel that you are being persecuted. They said, but we're actually very much alike. We are the minority in Sierra Leone. We are being persecuted. We are despised because of the gospel. You are too. The only difference is we know it. And you don't. You're still trying to fit in and convince everyone that you're not fools. Now that's convicting. Now imagine 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica when you say not just that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, But you also, as a defeatist belief, say, therefore, all other gods are false. That was a terminal offense, a capital offense to be committed in the Roman Empire. They were being persecuted. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. 
Again, Paul has to talk about their increase in love because he had already written to them telling them he was praying for this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes this. This is an answer to prayer, what we see in 2 Thessalonians. It's an answer to his prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow. See, I think that's why Paul's talking about it. It just flash flooded. May your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. He writes them that letter. He gets a report back five months later. They're just busting out all over the place, loving on one another. And I got to just tell you, as a pastor, as the apostle Paul must have just been Grinch style. His heart grew three times that day when he got that report. Just loved to hear it. Jesus had said in John 13, they will know you are my disciples by how you vote. No, 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 no. That's actually not what he said. That's, that's a bad translation. You should take that one out. You will know my dis- you are my disciples by your love, one for another. I should point out and mention this parallel track here. It can be easy to miss. Faith increasing because of the Father, this vertical response that produces a love because of the Lord. That's our horizontal response. We follow in the footsteps of our champion, our king, and our brother. So the three marks of a healthy church we would be proud of. Number one, genuine conversion. Number two, increasing faith. Number three, growing love. And then number four, persevering hope. Verse four here. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you. And he says, I have to. I can't not. I am compelled. I am obligated. I can't keep my mouth shut about you guys. I'm bragging to these churches in Corinth, but they're so stoned. They don't have any idea what I'm saying because it's Corinth for Pete's sake. They don't understand. But I'm telling them. I'm telling them about Athens. I'm telling them them in Athens. I'm telling them in, in Berea that you guys, you're increasing in faith. You're increasing in love. You are genuinely converted. And verse four, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. There's the wonderful triad of Paul's grid of a church. Faith, love, and now hope. doesn't say the term. And there's a reason. He's going to circle back to this in chapter 2 to go, hey, listen, perhaps your hope has begun to flicker out ever so slightly. You're growing in faith. That's good. You're growing in love. That's incredible. But I also want to commend you for standing up under the trials that you are facing. You are, he says, it doesn't come through in our English translation, you are, you're super maintaining. Like above all the other stuff that's happening, you are intentionally, diligently, volitionally, decidedly maintaining your hope, your steadfast, confident expectation of something good in the future. There was affliction in general from the Jewish people who opposed the gospel there in Thessalonica. There was also a general Affliction and persecution from just the Roman Empire that was absolutely legally saying you could not say that Jesus was the only way. You couldn't do that legally. And they said, well, what do you want us to do? He's a death-proof king. Take it up with him. But then there was also direct personal attacks and assaults. Paul knew both of these things firsthand from his time, those three and a half, four weeks in Thessalonica. Those things were happening, yet they maintained hope, a confident expectation of something good in the future. So they had faith. They had hope. They had love. There were genuine converts. Conversions were happening in the church. That's the marks. So what do we, in the 21st century, in East Texas, what do we take away from this? Well, again, our big idea. Church matters. So here are some church matters. Let me just give you three super quick implications, portable principles that we can walk out with this. Number one goes like this. 
Gratitude follows grace. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude follows grace. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, those of you with children, particularly when your children are young and it's Christmas time. And, and there's presents laid out, and in our house, it just I, because I guess people have discretionary income and nothing better to do with it, they would buy our sons toys. Like I, we, they, they wanted a box or, or the, to run with scissors. That's all they ever really wanted, apparently, was to run with scissors. But they would get all these different gifts, and we would say, go, and they would start tearing off the wrapping paper. And it was just like a, a, a badger in a box fan, just, just paper everywhere. It's just incredible. And they would open it up, and their eyes would glisten with delight and just extreme excitement. And then about one, 1,000, 2,000, boom, they're off to the next one. Their little entitled souls were like, what else is for me? What else is for me? What else do I deserve? What else do I get? And I don't know if you had the same experience. Every Christmas, every Christmas from the moment they could even like crawl, they would push their presents aside, and they would go to their desks, and they would start writing thank you notes. Oh, wait, no, that was a dream. No, never. And so it demonstrates that there's never actually been a recognition of gratitude. There is this sort of, but it's Christmas, and this is what I deserve, which is sort of silly and sad in a sweet, childlike way until we start to see that we have a tendency to behave the same way in church. We have received grace. We've received rescue We've received purpose, and we walk around frequently by default with the attitude of, yeah, 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 yeah. But what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? You know, that was cute and all, but, I mean, why wouldn't you save this? Why would I mean, hello. To which God goes, I love you so much. See, grace that doesn't produce gratitude probably hasn't really succeeded in softening a hard heart. It might have nudged the person because of social pressure or fear of consequence, but a true recognition of grace produces gratitude. And so we might say it like this. Since Jesus is Lord and God is Father, and since he has taken my sin and given me his righteousness, then the entirety of the Christian's life is one extended thank you in work and in word. So the Christian life equals thank you. And let's be real, I get it. Circumstances and situations and contexts do have impact and influence on us. And our gratitude drains and it leaks. But we are created in the image of God, able and called to preach sermons to our own souls, to be reminded of what is true and what is truth. So I'll just tell you transparently. I, I frequently walk around in my house and in my backyard or just as I'm driving along because I just need it. Because my face falls, my countenance slinks. My spirit darkens, and I have to say literally out loud so that I can actually hear the words, I am loved by the Father. I am in Christ my Lord. I am indwelled by the Spirit. I am engaged to His people. Shut your mouth, devil. Because it's just a nonstop barrage of either my own flesh reminding me what of a loser I am, or the world system at large, or my enemy whispering relentlessly that I am not any of those things, but I am. And so I just, I am loved by the Father. I am in Christ my Lord. I am indwelled by the Spirit. I am connected to the people. Enough! Susan will open the door. Everything okay out there? It's good! It's okay. 
And I'm so grateful for that. And I am reminded in church that those things are true. And so I leave here every time I walk through these doors with gratitude because that is to be our Christian life. Church matters. Secondly, we'll pick up some speed here. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit. You and I never go or grow past the gospel, ever. It is the message that changes how we live and look and love in the world. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and equally, marvelously to one another. That's true. The more we feast on the gospel and bring it to bear on every aspect of our lives, what we are really doing is drawing Christ close to us and ourselves close to Christ. The gospel is not just this box of information. The gospel is an announcement about how much God loves us and that he demonstrates that by sending his sendable self, his own son, to rescue us and to give us purpose. Our faith is in a person. Look at Jesus. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. He's not lore. He's not a hero. He's God. Your Jesus is not a superhero. He is God. He's also good. And he loves you. That's very, very, very good news. The more and more we feast on the gospel, the more we're drawing near to Christ. The more we're drawing near to Christ, the more appealing his people are to us. So I see it all the time when I hear people go, I like Jesus and I don't want to go to hell, but church people, no thank you. It stopped being funny a number of years ago. Because biblically, anybody who is drawing close to Jesus is thirsty for the people of Jesus. It's just how it is. That's what the Spirit is doing inside of us. So I can spot it a mile away. Oh, I have no use for the people of God. That might mean you have no use for the bridegroom. And that is a tragedy because he's definitely worth all of our person. This is what Paul was emotionally wrecked over. In the midst of that pagan European context, they were flash flood loving one another. And it was shocking. Nobody else in the empire had seen anything like that. That sort of behavior then was utterly unheard of, maybe in the extended family, but usually not even there. The third point goes very simply like this. Hope! That's a verb. It's an imperative. Hope! <laughs> Never allow yourself to dwell without hope. We as a species can survive for quite a while, relatively speaking, without food. We can survive a little less without water, but we can't go very long at all without oxygen. Hope is like oxygen. If you don't have access to hope, pretty soon you'll begin to gasp and flail foolishly trying to find it anywhere you can. Human beings were designed by God to hope. And so yet again, things that I have to say out loud to remind myself, I am from the future, living in the present because of what God did in the past. That little expression is so comforting and it's so setting and it's so stabilizing for all of the other crazy that begins to occur. I have to remind myself of what and when and who and whose I am. And I confidently expect something good in the future because of something great that God did in the past. And that equips and energizes me to love others here and now and in the present. Now, if there was only a whole group of people who thought and felt and loved and, lo and lived and looked like that, we would call it the church. 
that's what we're calling people to. Not any sort of social program or this, that, or the other. It's about genuine conversion. It's about growing faith, increasing love, and persevering in hope. That's who we are to be. And listen, church matters. It's a really big deal. I cheated this week. I went ahead and I flipped to the end. I know, it's really good. You should do that. I flipped to the end, and the very last book and the very last chapter of your Bible is Revelation 22. Now, here's the scandal. Here's the shock that if I'm God, I'm not doing it this way. But for about a trillion reasons, I am not God. The very end of all things before God finally moves into our neighborhood for all eternity. You know what the text says? Revelation 22, 17. The final beck and call. The Spirit to all of the world and the bride say, Not to myth, not to legend, not to path, not to procedure, not to philosophy, not to program. Come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Our Jesus is worth it. He is good. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opening study and this little letter from a man to some folks. Would you speak to us? Through it, by it, would we have an affection and a zeal all again for your son Jesus? And would you by your spirit well up in us an attention and an affection for your church as well? Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a genuine convert, doesn't know you, still trying to figure out how to have peace apart from grace, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus that they would be persuaded, convinced, they would believe. Would you give them the courage to speak with someone about that? To move forward, growing in faith, increasing in love, persevering in hope. For the rest of us, Father, that our believers, thanks be to God for salvation that has come to this house. And now, would you continue to move us forward? We would not merely tread water until someday when we see you face to face, but until that time, may we love one another and fulfill the great commandment. So we pray these things, Father. The only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.